We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ on this wonderful Sunday. Um, as I mentioned, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, that, that, that topic of suffering, which none of us avoid, um, but maybe more specifically, how do we bear up under suffering in this life and ultimately give God glory and honor? Um, that concept of suffering, um, I don't think that that's foreign to you. Um, I don't know all of your stories and, and what you've come into church with on this Sunday morning, but my guess is um, with, within a minute or two of conversation with each and every one of you, I could hear stories of suffering and of pain, loss of loved ones, right, um, health illness, loss of a job, economic issues. And so I, I think universally, not just within these walls, but in our world, I don't think that concept of suffering is very far away from every one of our doorsteps. Maybe we get a few moments of respite. <laughs> Maybe we get a few moments of peace, maybe a month or a year Times in your life that you feel as though um, suffering and that pain was a little more distant than present. But my guess is for each and every one of us, it's remarkably close to us and to our hearts. And so I think it's important for us as believers to say, okay, um, number one, what does this suffering look like? But, but how does God ask us, what tools does God give us to bear up under it and to live with it? And so that's what I want to do for us here today. Um, the word actually from our text is going to serve a little bit as our introduction here today. Um, the Greek word in our text for suffering, so from Romans 5, uh, is the Greek word thlipsis. So say that three times fast, right? Thlipsis. So it's a theta, right? So it's a th, thlip, thlipsis. I can't say it. I even practiced it. Um, but that's the word in our text that is translated as suffering. But what's really fascinating about that word suffering, and, and I think that's instructive for us as believers, is that that word philipsis has been used uh, um, kind of throughout history. And so this is not just a uniquely Christian word, right? And the reality of it is we know that suffering is not a uniquely Christian thing. And so that word philipsis, I'm not going to be able to keep saying it, um, um, is kind of used throughout and has been used throughout history. So uh, if any of you have kind of a medical background or, or uh, a kind of a medical history, um, there used to be an ailment that was referred to as, as thlipsis. And it specifically referred to uh, like high blood pressure and things like that. So I think we call it hypertension now. Is that what we call it? Yeah, something like that, right? So, um, but in the past, it actually had a term. So it was... It was this idea of, and that, that's what that Greek word means, thlipsis, it means, it means pressure, right? So, so they used to use it in the medical field to describe uh, um, high blood pressure and even specifically uh, your pulse, right? So every time you feel your heartbeat or you feel your pulse, there, your, your heart is exerting pressure in your body, okay? So that word has that idea of like, of a, of a pressing, right, and a, and a pressure. Um, and that was used by the Greeks, and in medical terms, uh, Aristotle actually makes reference to it in some of his works. 
Um, and so that idea of, of, of pressure is inherent in that word phlipsis, okay? So we started with the Greeks. Uh, we then kind of move on to the Romans. So they also understood pressure. They understood um, this concept of suffering, but they took that word phlipsis and they kind, of, they kind of moved it to a little bit different area. So phlipsis can mean um, pressure, but also suffering and also trouble and pain and all those kind of things. And specifically, a word called, a word which is tribulation. So you sometimes hear tribulations, right? So that, these are problems, right? And it's kind of an old-timey word we would think in our minds, but, but, but that word tribulation um, ultimately is derived from phlipsis. And so that specifically, and I think even at the time that Paul wrote Romans 5, um, in their minds when they would have heard the word tribulation, they would have thought of an implement. This is called a Roman tribulum, okay? So Roman tribulum. Can you guess? We did a thing with the kids on guessing what you all knew it was uh, apple press, didn't you, right? The kids had never seen, like it was, that was kind of cute. They had never seen an apple press. What's that thing do? What about this one? What do you think that does? Grades the roads. Yeah, it's it's pretty, that's a good, that's a good guess. Grades the roads. Um, It's not an early, early version of Jake Burton's snowboard that was illegal on ski hills when I was a kid. Um, But um, it's not necessarily a road grader. This is actually a thresher. So a Roman tribulum was a, um, it would thresh grain. So um, this is uh, the only picture I could find. Someone in the 1950s uh, um, was still using some nomadic tribes. But they would put sharp stones and flints on the bottom of that sled. They'd put something heavy on the sled, and then you would have horses or even people um, pull it around on top of grain. And the the, uh, the flints, the tribulum, um, would cut up the grain or the, um, the straw, and it would also separate the grain from the chaff. And so you would just spin that thing around on top of your grain long, long enough that all the chaff was on one side and the grain was on the other. Okay? So this was a Roman tribulum. So when Paul uses that word phlipsis even, I think there probably was thought in people's minds like, oh, I know what, okay, suffering, tribulation, trouble, it's kind of like when we run over grain with a heavy sled. (laughs) It doesn't feel very awesome, right? So now you can kind of see the etymology of this word and it's it's taking shape and it's kind of moving throughout the ages. Now, uh, we started with the Greeks, then we went to the Romans, and then we're going to just take it to its logical end with the British. because they took that word phlipsis, which means pressure uh, um, and tribulation, and they implemented it. This is uh, an illustration from, I think, especially the 1400s, um, mid-1500s, um, where they had an execution method, which was death by, can you guess? Pressure. And I'm, I looked, I, like, I, I found this online, and I'm like, is this legitimate? Like, this, they thought this was a good way... There's, there's other pictures that are even worse of like elephants, like, they, like using, ele- I'm like, what? Like that does not seem awesome or even efficient. Like who has elephants around? So the British did this. This uh, specifically um, was, was execution by pressure. So uh, um, you can see, kind of see the woman there. This is the front door of her house, actually. They take your front door off your own home, put it on top of you, 
and then pile rocks on you enough that it ends up crushing you to death. Okay. Philipsis. So we went from the Greeks all the way up through the British, and this is where we end up. But how about for you today? How much pressure do you feel on yourself? Um, my guess is you're not afraid of execution by crushing. <laughs> um, my guess is, is you've never seen a Roman tribulum, um, and, and probably like a quarter of you have hypertension, have high blood pressure, right? So, so we feel that pressure, that suffering, that tribulation, right? There was a study that I read um, came out this last month, a poll of, of American adults, and it was just kind of general, but over the last two years, right? So two years. So think of what has happened within your world and our world in the last two years. So, um, and one of the questions was, uh, have you ever felt so much stress, so much uh, um, pressure, tribulation, um, that you were unable to function? That, that was the question of American adults. And 27% of those respondents said yes. Okay? So 27% of you, of us, of our world, says that they are under so much pressure and stress and suffering so greatly that they can't even get out the door. Now, I don't know if that percentage sounds high or low, but I would guess it's highly dependent on how you're feeling this morning. I would also guess there probably have been moments in each and every one of our lives where we feel as though that pressure, that suffering, that pain, that difficulty is so oppressive that we can't leave our front door. If you feel like that this morning, I'm glad you're here. Um, if, if you don't feel like that specifically this morning, um, I'm sure that you have, and you might in the future. And so that's why I think it's a good thing for us to consider that as believers. What does God give us? What tools does He give us to bear up underneath that pressure, which at times is absolutely debilitating? So let's jump into our text. Uh, for those of you that are studious and got straight A's, here is where we're headed. Uh, we have three bullet points today, uh, and it, these are kind of general bullet points of how we're going to progress through our text. Uh, first thing is we want to talk specifically, what are we building on? So what, what foundation that is unique to Christianity do we have to understand this topic of suffering? So first one is build on. Um, second one is we're going to talk specifically about what is suffering. Pull that apart a little bit. Uh, but then lastly, um, talk about God's glory and even joy and hope in the face of suffering. So that's kind of where we're headed. If you'd like to follow along, you can. Um, you can follow in your bulletin, or you're going to see uh, the text on the screen behind me here. And here's where we're going to start. We're going to do uh, verse 1, and we're going to jump to verse 9 as well. So let's, let's, uh, let's read those. Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So, uh, I establish that everyone suffers, believer and unbeliever alike, right? 
no one gets out of here alive, right? No one leaves this earth without suffering. So that is universal, okay? But the question we get to ask and that Paul really establishes for us is, then what does God give to us as believers that is unique that the world around us maybe doesn't have? Well, this is it. Paul uses this word justified twice in this text. He uses it all over the place, but twice in this text. And, and um, that word justified is just um, steeped in, in, in salvation, right? And in Christianity, it was, a, uh, it was a, a Roman legal term. It was declared not guilty. So uh, we think of our modern uh, court system and double jeopardy. You cannot be tried twice for something that you have been declared not guilty for. Well, guess what? Here's what Paul is saying to you as believers, as you suffer, as you, as you feel the pressure of the world around you, Paul says you have been justified. You've been declared not guilty. And Why? Well, not because of who you are. Not because you're such shining examples of what it means to be a Christian. Not because you are so stoic under pressure. Not because you just, you have your act together so well. But because of Christ. Because of Jesus. And so that word justified, declared not guilty, is intimately connected to the concept of grace. Of undeserved love that you have in Jesus Christ. And Lest we miss this, <laughs> this is the foundation for Christianity and for Christian living. In fact, I, it, would do, it would do you no good, it would do us no good to talk about any other topics until we know this, that you have been declared not guilty on account of Christ, not by works, not because of who we are, not because of our resume, but solely because of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, okay? And so Paul says twice in our text, you've been justified. It's almost his way of saying, don't forget. <laughs> don't lose sight of this. Don't lose track of this. You will not be tried again for those sins. Jesus has paid that price. Christ took the eternal pressure upon his shoulders, suffered death in your place, so you would know without a shadow of a doubt, no matter and I, I almost think Paul is saying, um, lots of stuff's going to happen to you. Lots of stuff has happened to you. You're going to suffer. And life is going to be really, really hard at times. But what Paul is saying to us and what Christ did for us is saying, no matter how tough it gets, Christ took the ultimate pain. No matter how difficult it is, Christ paid the ultimate price and suffered in your Okay. Now, that is the basis for us as believers to talk about the concept of suffering. And, and it gives us a foundation to be able to view, to be able to understand, on some level to be able to intellectualize, but even, even uh, an ability to, to mold our hearts, right, and, and really bear up under suffering in a way that most within our world just simply don't have the capacity to do, okay? So, that's our first point, right? That's your foundation. It's Christ and what he's done for you, right? Um, at the beginning of this sermon series, this was the image that I chose. And um, it, it was for a couple reasons. Number one, um, I 
I like climbing mountains. Uh, number two, we talk about that idea of resiliency or maturity, and we know how difficult, if any of you have climbed 14ers or done hikes, you know, it, it's not so much skill, it's just being willing to put like one foot in front of the other for a very long time, right? Um, so I chose that image for all those things, but, but even more importantly, because I think it, in some sense, lifts our eyes and our hearts to the object of our faith, which ultimately is Christ. And that's why Paul can say, justified, you've been declared not guilty. Because, and we're going to come back to this kind of at the end, because um, hope is only as good as the object in which you place your hope. Ours is placed squarely on Christ. Okay? All right. That's our foundation. Let's move on to our next couple verses, uh, verses 3 and 4. It says this, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. So now, here you can see that word used twice. So that's that Greek word, flipsis, right, that we kind of walked through. Um, so Paul says that you're going to be able to glory in that suffering. And I think that concept of suffering, though, is hard for us. You know, the number one um, um, objection to God and to Christianity, um, always number one or two up there, um, is the presence of suffering and kind of connected to that pain and evil, right? So that's, that's the, one of the number one things that those who, who are unbelievers say, I do not want anything to do with that God. I don't want anything to do with a with Christianity or, or a congregation or any of that because, because of suffering. Because I see it, because I feel it, and sometimes I've been a part of it. Okay? So um, that is almost universally felt. right? And I think increasingly so uh, um, within our world and within our lives. And, so I, and I think there's there's kind of three parts to this that I want to just pull apart as we talk about that concept of suffering. Um, the first is, I think, I think maybe we're less equipped for suffering than maybe other places, other people, and uh, maybe people in, in, at different times within our world history. Now, why, why do I say that? I think... That there, and there, I think there's some evidence to this that, that the relative amount of blessing that we enjoy as Americans has allowed us, in some ways, a little bit of an uh, insulated blanket to suffering. Now, that could come off very badly because for some of you that are maybe sitting here this morning, you're thinking, what's he talking? Like, I, I just got diagnosed with disease. I just lost a family member. Like, and so I'm not minimizing those things. But I do think, in general, we are increasingly maybe less equipped to deal with suffering than generations that have come before us and maybe um, um, even within history. I'm going to give you one example. Um, I got my mom's permission to share this story with you. Uh, so my mom is uh, 78 years old. And <clears throat> this was always a story that was... Uh, kind of amazing to me as a son, and then the more I, rem I think about it, it's even more like bizarre uh, to my kids or the next generation below me. Um, but uh, my mom, uh, our, I had an oldest brother, oldest, oldest brother. Uh, his name was Theron. So, um, and some of you know my eldest son is named Theron. 
Well, it wasn't just a out of the out of the hat type name, right? So my mom's first child was named Theron. Uh, he was born prematurely. He weighed about three to four pounds, which is actually not bad weight. My mom made a comment. She said if he had been born today, um, he, he would have lived. He would have lived, uh, but he didn't. So um, he was born prematurely. Uh, he lived about four hours and, and, and had too many complications, um, and, and he died. So there's a gravestone in northern Wisconsin uh, with the name Theron Spiegelberg on it. So that was her first child, okay? Um, young couple, very first child, dies after four hours of life, okay? Um, my mom and dad conceive again. My mom conceives um, and has my eldest sister, okay? Um, then has my older brother, Tommy. So Becca and Tommy are then born. Um, then there's about a five or six year gap in between my older brother, Tommy, and then me and my younger brother, Marcus. Well, what fills in that gap? Those of you that are moms or you can probably, or women are probably thinking, okay, I probably have an idea, and you'd be right. Uh, my mom had two more miscarriages in between uh, child two and child three and four. Okay, so if you're counting, <laughs> um, we're up to seven, right? Um, and so w- when my mom considers suffering in general, or considers, or, or we, we look at, let's say, my family, and we have a we have, you know, a family of four. I've got three siblings and say, oh, isn't that wonderful? But it was, it was checkermarked with pain and suffering and loss. In fact, after almost every child, she had lost a child, right? That was the life that she had lived as a, as a young woman. Now, you fast forward to us today and the average couple has, what are, the average child is 1.2, which... I don't know who the point two is. They're just really small children. No. Um, but, you know, mo- many couples, if they're, if they're blessed to have children at all, maybe uh, it, it's one or two kids, right? Um, and so now we think about that change from age 78 to, to maybe a younger generation that's only going to have one or two children. And maybe some of the suffering that they do not have to go through that was standard for my mom at 78. And if we want to back ourselves out even more, it was absolutely standard practice that, that women that had children would see uh, um, multiple children oftentimes die before they did with infant mortality. It was absolutely assumed and understood that you would have children um, that you would never see grow up, that you would die and they would still be infants. So in world history, this was the reality of living, right? So now we talk a little bit about how on some level maybe we are a little less equipped for the presence of suffering. That does not mean that we don't suffer. It just means I think it is good for us to step back at times and say um, suffering, suffering is omnipresent and is, a, is a absolutely a part of life um, and has been since the beginning of our world, Right? Um, you remember that statistic that I mentioned at the beginning? Um, uh, I said 27%, right, of us as Americans said, we feel so much pressure that we can't even leave our house. We cannot function. Um, they broke that down demographically. Uh, and so for the respondents that were aged 35 or younger, 
Um, do you ever feel so much pressure that you cannot function, you cannot leave your front door? For those that were 35 and under, that percentage went up close to 50%. Okay? Are those 35 and under suffering any more or less than those that are 35 and older? Uh, no, that we, we're all suffering. But there also is a, a, a less of a capacity to intellectualize, to understand, and even on some level live with suffering that is inherent when you live in this world. Okay? So that's the first one. Um, the second one, though, there is that just the reality of it, of suffering, right? Um, the presence of it. And I think that's tied into that we're less equipped for it. Um, but just the, the fact that, and, and I think this is a strength within Christianity, that we don't pretend that we don't suffer, right? We don't, and even on the pages of Scripture, you will hear incredible stories of suffering and loss and pain. And so our God above said, I'm going to give you a sacred text to teach you about me, but also to teach you about yourselves, and he doesn't leave out the tough stuff. He doesn't leave out pain and suffering. In fact, in, in many of the most pivotal times within Jesus' ministry, we see the greatest moments of pain and suffering, okay? So less equipped for, we also need to understand the reality of it, right? But then the third one is really just our reaction to it, right? Um, how do we bear up under that suffering? Remember I mentioned the number one, one of the top objections to God and to Christianity is the presence of pain and suffering and evil. Uh, there's a guy, I've shared this stat before, a professor named Gary Habermas. Uh, he would always ask all of his students, all of his, uh, um, um, his students, the, the question of, of kind of how they viewed pain and suffering and the problem of evil. And he said um, really distinct patterns kind of came out. He would ask this year after year after year about um, really the, the, how they viewed that and the reaction to suffering. And he split them into these three categories. So he said um, um, people's reaction to suffering, um, part of it's factual, part of it's emotional, right? And the last one is uh, he uses the term volitional or acting upon. It's like you've actually been a participant in those things. Um, what do you think the percentages are for those? And like I said, he, he said he just kind of over time said this is kind of where all these kids land. Which one do you think is the highest percentage? Yeah, yeah, you'd be right. He said in general this is almost how all of them land. He said it doesn't matter um, how many come through my doors as a professor, um, this is how they react against suffering, right? 10% of it is factual, um, um, just the reality, uh, the, the intellectual understanding of suffering, right? And just not wanting to grapple with that. Um, the last one, 10%, is that he said some of my students have been active participants and in inflicted suffering. So this is volitional, that they've done it, right? Um, and they've seen it done to them, therefore, we want nothing to do with God. But he said 80%, he said the vast majority uh, of my students, and I would say the vast majority of us, is, is we have an emotional reaction um, against and to that suffering. And why do you think that is? I'll tell you why. 
Because suffering we can intellectualize, and you can hear your pastor say, everyone suffers. But when does it actually matter to you? When it happens to me. I know the world suffers. I know the world kind of sucks. But as long as it's outside my doors and not on my footstep, you know, I can deal with it. But it's when it becomes me, right? And I think you know that to be true too, right? Uh, when it's your suffering, it feels like a mountain that you, cannot, you maybe can't get out your door, right? Um, if you feel that way, you're not alone. And again, this is how the world reacts to suffering as well, right? And so what is Paul's response to that? Number one, we already built on that foundation of justification. Number two, I think we can understand our suffering to some degree. Um, but Paul says we can actually uh, um, adjust and, in fact, put in place our reaction to the suffering that we bear up under. So let's jump into our last couple verses. Paul says this, And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. This, uh, it's a, this is translated boast. The um, older translation most that, that I read was, and we glory, we, uh, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So, uh, and, and so, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And so we zero in on this word glory that Paul's talking about, and we kind of have to pull that apart just a little bit, because Paul says, you've been justified, declared not guilty, now you've got this, this suffering, and you've got to understand what it is and what it isn't, and that everyone suffers, but he says, in, in your suffering, so not because of your suffering, not, not alongside of your suffering, but in your suffering, you can actually glory. So what does that glory mean? remind us of? Well, I think, I think it's, it's, it's kind of a spectrum of things. And I would say it's both eternal and it's temporal. When we talk about glory, and I think that even Paul is referencing us here, um, and we're going to go to the end and then come back to the beginning. So we start with the eternal. So Paul is saying um, that, that you, can, you can rejoice in the glory of God. What does that mean? It means that as believers, we can look beyond the suffering and the earthly life that we are living and we can see the transcendence of God. We can know that we have a God that loved us enough eternally to send His Son to suffer and to die for us. So there is, there is this long-term thinking. We talk about maturity. This, there's this long-term view of who we are, what we've done, and where we're headed. So there's this transcendence of being able to look at God and saying, now He knows what He's doing. And He knows suffering and he knows me. We look ahead to that. And ultimately, eternity. When are we glorified? In eternity, on account of Jesus. We are made perfect, right? Our sins are forgiven. So I think Paul certainly is saying this is part of that glory. He says, long term thinking, glory of God. But then that kind of folds back on itself into how we actually live. Because in our suffering, if we focus on what God is, what He's done, and our eternal destination, guess what it does even in the midst of suffering? We're able to find beauty and we're able to find joy. How can Paul say that? Because he knew it and because you know it. Because some of the times and the moments in your life when you would have said you've suffered the most and you want escape out of and from under 
you can also at times see incredible beauty and joy that have come from it. Uh, the Bible actually uses an illustration of childbirth, of the pain and the trauma of a child. And yet afterwards, the only thing that's remembered is the joy of the child in your arms, right? Okay? Paul is saying the very same thing for us, right? In our suffering, in the midst of that pressure, you are going to find incredible acts of beauty and of joy. And in fact, if you keep your eyes open to it, I bet you you can think of it and you will see it this week. Because God does incredible things from broken people, from pain and from suffering, and, and draws out incredible beauty and amazing joy in our lives and in our world. Okay? One last comment. So, verses 2 and 3 again. Paul finishes with this. He says, uh, We know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character, hope. So Paul takes us on this kind of journey and we end at hope, which I referenced earlier, which is only as good as the object in which we place our hope. And so God says to you, I'm going to use your suffering, I'll use your pain, and even the suffering and the pain of the world and the people around you, I'm ultimately going to use it for your good. Bring out beauty, bring out joy, and ultimately to bring you to eternity. Uh, there's a story I read <clears throat> recently um, uh, about a, a child that w- had long-term uh, hospitalization. This was in a, in a, in a big city. Uh, and so, um, and actually we've wrestled with this a little bit with our daughter Tatum. So long-term hospitalizations, what, what, what is it, how does a kid go to school when they live in a hospital? The, the answer is they actually don't, <laughs> right? They don't, right? Because there are more important things happening than school in that moment, right? But does that mean that school isn't important? Well, no, right? And so, so sometimes um, hospitals and, and, um, and actually Jamie does homeschool stuff with Tatum as she's able to do, but um, certain hospitals would sometimes have programs where they would, they would say, well, we want these kids, even though they're in pain and in suffering and hospitalized, um, we want them still to be able to progress academically um, so that when they get out, they're going to be able to, to kind of get right back into the stream of things. Um, so there was a story about a teacher that was sent to the local hospital, um, and, and her task was, uh, you're going to teach uh, adverbs and pronouns to this young boy who's, who's in the hospital. And she had done this program before, and so she said, okay, I'm a teacher. I know how to teach kids. I know how. So um, she went into that boy's hospital room, but no one had given her any heads up uh, on, on why he was actually in the hospital, right? And, and she walked in, and uh, the reason that he was there is that he had been, he'd been horribly, he'd been badly, badly burned. Right? And so you can imagine the scene as she walks in, and this kid um, ha- has been burned, and he's hooked up to IVs, and he's in excruciating amounts of pain, and his body is just oozing, and um, um, is just one of the more miserable uh, um, sights that she could have seen and known. So she walks in there, and she said, I kind of stu- just stumbled through it because I'm supposed to teach him adverbs and pronouns. And so she said, I kind of stumbled through it and like tried to teach him. Um, and then I left and she, she, was, she was remarkably distraught. She said, I don't, I don't know what just happened there. Um, the next day she got called in from the administrator of the program and she thought, oh my goodness, like what did, like what did I do? Like this isn't going to be good, right? Um, and I wasn't prepared for it and all this stuff. And 
Um, um, oh, it was next day, a couple weeks later, rather. Um, and, and she said uh, um, to her, well, what did you do while you were in there? And the teacher was a little defensive. She said, I don't, I just tried to teach him uh, adverbs and pronouns and things like that. And, um, and then the administrator said, because, because he's completely different. <laughs> like, um, she said, what did you do? Because his entire attitude, his entire view of life has changed. And she stumbled around. She said, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. I just terribly tried to teach him adverbs and pronouns, and no one wants to, even when you're healthy, you don't want to learn those things, right? So she said, I, I tried to teach him these things, um, but the administrator said, but from that moment on, um, um, everything changed. And so they asked the young man, they said, why, why, why did things change? Why did your attitude change? And he said this, um, they wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns or on... Um, Ad, on pronouns and, uh, and adverbs uh, with a dying boy, would they? Okay. It was a good lesson in the midst of his suffering, right? Someone had come and said, you are worth working on, right? And life is worth living, even in the midst of suffering. Brothers and sisters, the very same thing is true for you. And your God above does not stop working on you and in you and in the midst of your suffering. He does not cast aside broken people um, that feel the pressure of this world and maybe can't get out their front door. In fact, what he does is he comes inside with you, right? Um, Because he understands suffering. He understands pressure. He understands pain. So, let's, yeah, let's, let's let's be resilient. Let's be mature. Let's understand pain and the suffering that we experience in our lives and in the world around us. But let's be shining examples of who Christ is and ultimately the hope that we have in Him. My prayer for you is that. Let's live lives of patience. Let's forgive more than we think we have to because you never know what is happening or who is suffering beneath the surface. And let us consistently point to Christ and the hope that we have and the forgiveness we find only in Him. Amen.